If you would, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Our text is the first commandment. It's found in verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. After more than 400 years in Egypt, much of it spent in slavery, the family of Jacob, as his descendants, and quite a large number, are led out by Moses, led out of Egypt. This happens after a message was delivered by Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. Pharaoh refused, and we have a series of plagues culminating with the tenth plague in which the firstborn of Egypt throughout the land are killed. So Pharaoh sends them away, but then he changes his mind and he comes after them and seemingly has trapped them against the Red Sea. But once again, they are delivered miraculously. And after they pass through the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army are destroyed. Moses leads them to the desert of Sinai, specifically to Mount Sinai. And it is there that God would enter into covenant with the nation of Israel. We saw last week that there, in the ancient world there were at least two types of treaties or covenants that uh, were made between different parties. The first was called a parity, which is self-explanatory. You have two kings, two kingdoms, uh, two parties that are fairly equal. Okay? Uh, but that's not what's happening here. The second type is what is known as the su- suzerainty treaty, and it's between a higher authority he makes with his subjects, his vassals, those who are under him, who are subject to him. And this is what we find here in the book of Exodus. God is the authority and he makes a treaty. He enters into covenant with the children of Israel. They are his subjects and he will impose on them laws and conditions. We saw last week, and so I don't want to belabor the point that these treaties are made up of six parts. uh, And this is what we find in chapters 19 and 20. One commentary says that God is the God of Jacob Isaac, I'm sorry, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the way God makes time. That is by making covenant and partnership with Israel in order to redeem the world. God gives the people a story. And the story is this. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean that they will be a holy nation? It means they'll be a people set apart, different from others and that they will be a kingdom of priests. That is to say they will exist for the, for the purpose or for the benefit of the whole world, to intercede, to make sacrifice, to mediate, to live in such a way in obedience to the commandments that the surrounding nations will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding. And this is what we read in Deuteronomy 4.6. God says to Israel, observe them carefully, that is the commandments, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The commandments are the basis of this covenant that God is entering into with Israel. 
But as we saw last week, commandments aren't simply something that exists in a fallen world. We need to be careful that we, we don't think, oh, commandments are for bad people. You have laws for people who are bad, and so it's to sort of correct their behavior or to control their behavior. But there was a time when man was without sin in the Garden of Eden, and God gave Adam commandments. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, rule over it, take care of the garden, name the animals, and do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, we're no longer in Eden, and we're no longer perfect, and since the fall, we now have these commandments, and even though we are made in God's image, we tend to do the things that are wrong. We don't always do what is right. Um, We do what is wrong, and we don't do what we should do. And so God has, in fact, given commandments within the context of a fallen world. We may not like it, it may make us uncomfortable, but it is the nature of God to command. Uh, One writer put it this way, command is the defining and characteristic marking of the true God. The true God is one who commands. He does so out of love, okay? Just as a parent will say to a child, you know, don't run out into the street, there's traffic. Uh, you could get hurt. And they say, well, that's, that sounds very bossy. No, it is a command born out of love. And God gives his commandments because he loves his people. There are two points that I think are critical to studying the Ten Commandments. The first one I mentioned last week, the second I didn't. The first is that the Exodus comes before Sinai. They leave Egypt before they get to Sinai. Redemption comes before the commandments. And that means that grace comes before law. Israel was delivered and was redeemed before they were given the Ten Commandments. Moses didn't go to Egypt with the Ten Commandments and say, okay, these are the rules you have to follow. He, in fact, was given these commandments by God at Sinai to a people who had been delivered uh, out of Egypt. But the second thing, and this I did not mention last week, something we need to be clear about. The Exodus was not a liberation. Oftentimes people think of it as a liberation, that God liberated his people from slavery. In fact, there is a school of theology that emerged uh, in the 1960s called liberation theology, which has its roots here. And basically it argues that God wants to liberate people, that that is his purpose. But what we find, in fact, is not liberation, but an exchange of masters. Pharaoh was their master in Egypt. Now that they have been set free, they have been redeemed, God is their master. I say they've been set free from the rule of Pharaoh, but now they are the subjects of God. See, liberation, we might think, well, that means I get to do what I want. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, Elias and Anne's son, Hosea, their oldest that on his fourth birthday, he asked his mom, am I four today? She goes, yes. Now I can do whatever I want. Um, This is not what happens in the Exodus, that Israel says, oh, now we can do what we want. They are transferred from the rule of Pharaoh to the rule of God. Now, 
to the extent that they obey the commandments of God, they are free. But they are not free to do what they want. God knew, and if you think about it, it makes sense, that if he brought Israel out of Egypt and then left them to their own devices, that they would end up in a similar situation as what they had in Egypt. They would have a a type of Pharaoh rule in different forms, but yeah, they would in fact end up under the rule of someone else. So God gives the commandments in part as a basis for this new society. Okay, you're no longer slaves of Pharaoh, but now you are my servants. And these are the commandments. Because otherwise, the evil kingdom, if you wish, is going to try to come and take you back and make you slaves once again. Israel cannot resist the evil empire, if you wish, if they do not have a counter-institution. And the institution is, in fact, these Ten Commandments. They are the basis for an alternative way of life for the children of Israel. And this is true for us as well, as children of God. In the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings, we keep hearing the language of Exodus to describe our salvation. Just one such place is in Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, Pharaoh, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So it is through Jesus that we have been redeemed and brought out of the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom. In Romans 6, Paul explains this more fully. He fleshes it out. This is Romans 6, verses 16 to 18. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sins, which to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Set free from sin, but slaves of righteousness. Now, I think some people might be uncomfortable with this. I think many Christians might be uncomfortable with this. Like, no, I'm free. I've been set free from sin. You are now a slave of righteousness. You belong to God. You are slaves to the one whom you obey, period. One more thing, and then we will move on. Uh, there are two categories of law during this time. One is what we would today call case law. Um, it often begins with, if you do this, then, and then there are consequences that follow. And we see this in chapter 19. Uh, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Okay? You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The other is a word I'm not that familiar with, but it's called apodictic. And it simply means it is a precept. It is a command. It's an exhortation. In other words, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. This is the way it is. It's not, well, if you do this, then this is what will happen. No, it's like, this is the way that it is. We find both types of law in the Mosaic Law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But the Ten Commandments are the... Apodictic. They are commandments that they are to follow.
The first commandment is what we're looking at today. It is the foundation of the whole law, particularly the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The beginning of the law and the commandments and the covenant is a reminder that God is the one who redeemed Israel out of Egypt. Lest somewhere down the line, like, yeah, we would have gotten out on our own. Uh, No, God is the one who redeemed them. One writer has said that all the commandments are constituted in this first commandment. It's like, if you don't have the first commandment, you can't have the rest. They all rest on this, that God is the Lord. He is the one who redeemed them. And we're reminded in the first commandment that God is not beyond this world, beyond this life, beyond time. He is intimately involved. He, in fact, in a personal way, delivered Israel out of slavery and out of Egypt. He did what people thought was impossible. He is able to make possible the things that people might think are impossible. And he was in conversation with Israel. He's not some far-off deity that you know, you know, says something and then he's gone. He's involved with them. And the conversation continues over the years. And um, it's not a cold, detached, clinical, intellectual conversation. Uh, there are great emotion involved, particularly when Israel disobeys God. Then we hear angry words from God. We hear him saying, you are an adulterer or an adulteress in the book of Hosea. You are a fornicator. For Israel's part, they're like, well, you know, we we broke a few of the laws. You know, it's, it's no biggie. It's just a small transgression. And God's like, no, this is really serious. And the conversations become heated. Uh, They're emotional. They're loud. They're marked by conflict. He is the Lord, their God, and they are to obey him. Failure or refusal to obey the commandments should result in conflict. Because someone might say, well, what makes him the boss of us? What gives him the right to tell us what to do? Well, God wants them to know that right now they're in the wilderness, they're at Sinai, but the time will come when they will live in a land permanently and they will be surrounded by people who worship false gods, pagans. And if they're not careful, they will forget that there's only one God and he is their God and they are to obey him. You might say, well, would that, could that really happen? It happened in Egypt. They were there for four centuries and they followed the Egyptians in their idolatry. We read this in Ezekiel 20. I said to them, each of you get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did not get rid of the vile images they had set their eyes on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. So I said I would pour out my wrath on them and spend my anger against them in Egypt. But for the sake of my name, I did what would keep it from being profane in the eyes of the nations they lived among and in whose sight I had revealed myself to the Israelites by bringing them out of Egypt. Therefore, I led them out of Egypt and brought them into the desert. I gave them my decrees and made known to them my laws, For the man who obeys them will live by them. 
while they were in Egypt, they became pagans. They followed the practices of the Egyptians and God's like, stop it, and they didn't. And so he had a, a decision, should I just destroy them or should I deliver them? And he delivers them and he gives them his laws. And if they follow these laws, they will live the life that God intended for them to have. The Israelites need to know that he is God. And so the beginning of the law is you can't have any other gods. The basis of this first commandment to say such a thing is that God, in fact, does exist. In Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. If one does not believe that God exists, then you get rid of the first commandment, which is the foundation of all the other commandments, and it all comes crumbling down. And this is a point of conflict with many modern uh, various worldviews. Um, people like Ludwig Feuerbach, seen as the first modern atheist, uh, he, he, he said that God, in fact, was a projection, a wishful projection of human needs. In 1841, he wrote The Essence of Christianity, and this is what he wrote. The divine being is nothing else than the human being, or rather the human nature purified, freed from the limits of the individual man-made objective, that is, contemplated and revered as another, a distinct being. All the attributes of the divine nature are therefore attributes of the human nature. In other words, there really isn't any God. It's just we look at ourselves and we, we, we see the part that we really, really like, that we think is good, and we sort of project and say that's the way that God is. So what we call divine nature is actually human nature. I would argue that if, in fact, God was a projection, um, I think we might have projected a more congenial and more compliant God than the triune God. Seventy years later, Sigmund Freud sort of went in a different direction, and he said, at bottom, God is nothing other than an exalted father. So in other words, it is the infantile projection of the human need for protection. We need a father, and so we project that, and we say that that is God. For Freud, God is not real. He's a human invention. It's interesting because Freud was Jewish, raised in a Jewish home, wanted to say he should have known better, the first commandment. Um, but for him, uh, God was a human invention that succeeded only in generating guilt and anxiety. So qu quite a different view than Feuerbach, that that's the best of human nature. And for Freud, it's like, no, he sort of is there to reveal the worst of human nature. But both views allow for autonomy. Autonomy comes from two words in Greek, auto, which means self, namas, which means law. It's self-law. It's where I make up the law myself. I make up my own commandments. It's a desire, it's a quest to be independent and to be self-sufficient, to be our own gods. And you know what? This is what the serpent said to Eve back in the garden. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And ever since then, human beings have tried to fulfill that promise. All these centuries later, in the modern world, as one writer put it, faced with the apparent meaninglessness of a world without God, 
get rid of the first commandment, there's no God, we assume that a major modern task is to create or impose meaning. And I would add, or identity. But because we have the first commandment, we are reminded that the meaning of our lives is in fact given. This is something that God has given through the discovery that we are indeed creatures of a gracious God. He is the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, a God of grace. And what is the meaning of life? Well, it is in fact the byproduct of having been addressed by God in the first commandment. Modernity has not succeeded in killing off God, the true God, but even false gods, okay? Instead, they have replaced his worship with superstition. We'll look at this more next week, the Lord willing. But just as we were created to serve, we saw this in Romans 6, um, we are also created to worship. To rephrase Bob Dylan's song, you've got to serve somebody, we would say you've got, to serve, you've got to worship somebody or something. You will either worship the Lord your God or an idol. But the first commandment says no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. What is an idol? What is an idol? It is something within creation. So that means it's a gift from God. But it's something that God has given us that is inflated to the point that is to be a substitute for God. And ever since Eden, we have been looking for idols, something to put in the place of God. John Calvin wrote, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We are always putting out idols, things that we want to put our trust in rather than God. He continued, man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity, as it sluggishly plods, indeed is overwhelmed with the crassest ignorance. It conceives an unreality and an empty appearance as God. It looks at something that there's really nothing there and say, this is God. It becomes the idol. Now, we as the children of God need to take this to heart today. To have an idol does not mean that you deny that God exists or that you deny God's character. You may remember that we saw last Sunday in chapter 32, Moses was up on Sinai getting the Ten Commandments and it was taking a long time and people were getting tired. And, and so they said to Aaron, come make us gods that, who will go before us. As for this fellow Egypt who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so Aaron made a calf of gold. And then he said, he built an altar, and then he said, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. The Lord? This is a calf. This is a golden calf. This is, in fact, an idol. But it is a temptation and a tendency to take that which God has given us, and we don't deny that God exists, we call him Father, and yet these things may in fact become idols to us. We use God's name, but we are driven by self-centeredness, by self-deception, by self-inflation, making ourselves, or believing ourselves to be something greater than we are. 
And this is how people justify what they do. They don't do it primarily in terms of God's law, but they may, you know, justify it for their own purposes. Um, but this is a constant danger for the people of God. That we would quote the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But in the meantime, we have idols that we have created, things that we have put in the place of God. Now, there are those who deny God's existence, like Mr. Feuerbach. And they make idols without reference to God. But it is the human heart that is constantly trying to find a substitute for God. So, the first commandment is there. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Who is this Lord? Who is this God? Well, the Bible is a revelation of who he is. Here we learn of his characteristics and his attributes. And let me just briefly go over some of them. God is self-existent. All other things are created. God is uncreated. He doesn't depend on the world or on anything else for his existence. Rather, the world depends on him. God is eternal and omnipresent. He has life within himself. He didn't have a beginning in space and time in a way that is far beyond our capacity to understand. God exists apart from space and time. He has no beginning, no period of growth, no old age, no end. God's nature is unchanging. The theological word that people use is immutability, that God does not change. He is living and active. See, as human beings, we would think if somebody doesn't change, they're boring. Uh, you know, and like the one thing that might not change is a stone or a rock. But a living thing, you know, if you plant a seed and it grows and it gets it, and then at a certain point it dies, when we say that God is unchanging, we're like, um, I don't know, that, that sounds uh, like he is not really alive or active. No, God is alive and active. He is consistent in all that he does. He knows all things. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. Nothing in creation is hidden from him. When God judges, it isn't because he lacks all the facts, that he lacks some information. God knows all things. He is faithful and true. And because he is faithful and true, his judgments are faithful and true as well. God is not inconsistent. God is not hypocritical. We can believe God because he keeps his promises. We read of his faithfulness throughout scripture. He's faithful to keep his promises. In Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. God keeps his word. He is faithful to forgive our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful not to let us be tempted above that which we are able to bear. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And amazingly, amazingly, he is faithful when we are faithless. If we are faithless, Paul writes to Timothy, he will remain faithful 
for he cannot disown himself. God is perfectly wise. We don't simply say he knows everything, but he is wise. He does know everything, but it isn't simply a matter of information. He is holy. He is morally spotless in his character, in his action. He is the standard. He is the source for what is right. There isn't a standard of right and wrong beyond God. God himself is holy. He is the standard. He is righteous. His moral law expresses this, and his judgment also as well. And yet, in mercy, he withholds judgment, and in grace, he freely gives what we do not deserve. And all of these flow from his great love, because God not only loves, God is love. He is holy and he is love. He's also personal, something we lose sight of, and he is ethical. He delights in justice and righteousness. He despises injustice, unrighteousness and corruption. His righteous indignation is provoked by injustice and the works of sin, not by selfish emotion. So when Israel breaks his commandments and we hear angry words, This is a part of who God is. He is patient and long-suffering. And yet, as we will see next week, the Lord willing, he is also jealous. Not in a sinful way, but in a way that, well, we will look at it next Sunday. He is free. That is to say, God is not conditioned by anything other than himself. This is where, you know, people think they're really being clever. If God can do anything, can he make a rock so big that he can't lift it? No, God is free to be who he is. Okay. He cannot do something which is contrary to his character. So God is not free to approve of sin or to be unloving, to be unwise, to be unfaithful, to be uncompassionate or unmerciful. God cannot deny himself, as we just read. God is free to be himself, his personal self, his eternal self, his living self, his intellectual self, his ethical, emotional, and volitional self. God is authentic. He is self-conscious. He knows who he is, what his purposes are. He has a very keen sense of identity, meaning, and purpose. God is omnipotent. He is able to do whatever he wills and if he wills it. God cannot, he is not free to do something contrary to his will. And then God is transcendent. He is above all things. He is unique from all creation. He is uncreated. We are the creatures. We are the creation. God is transcendent. And yet, he is always He's eminent. He's always within his creation. He is always at work. This is the God of the first commandment. And we are told that we are to have no other gods. Why does God start this way? Why does God tell us that we are not to have any other gods? Does he think we will do this? No. He knows that we will. He knows the human heart. 
unless we obey what he has commanded, we will in fact have other gods. We will have idols. We will have things that we put in his place, things that we look to for security, for a sense of well-being, something to help us get through the day rather than looking to God. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. There is one God and there is one law. We are to love the Lord our God by obeying him. You see, the Ten Commandments are both a gracious reminder of who we are and an abrasive prod to be who we ought to be. Yeah, this is who you are. You're going to go after other gods. Don't do that. Do not have other gods. I am the Lord your God. The question comes up, must one believe in God in order to be moral? In other words, if someone's an atheist, would we say that they can't be moral? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that this implies that we know what moral is and that we know who God is. Um, This is really important. Uh, Jordan Peterson, I've seen several videos of this where he says, people ask him, do you believe in God? And he said, you know, First of all, what do you mean by believe? And then second of all, what do you mean by God? You know, people just throw these words around and so they're like, well, I can be moral without believing in God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be moral? We need to recognize that in the matter of belief, we as Christians are not primarily people who are believers. It may sound strange. We are not primarily people who believe in something religious. Rather, we are people who have been called by God to live lives in community whereby if if this God that we talk about does not exist, then the way that we live our lives makes no sense. If you do not have the first commandment, then to live a quote-unquote moral life, why? Why are you doing that? It makes no sense. It is only because there is one God who has redeemed us, that we, by God's grace, don't follow follow other gods, that we then live lives of obedience, and it only makes sense because God is there. One commentary put it this way. When Christians are busy believing, we are not assenting to a set of religious platitude. We are putting our bodies on the line, betting every day that God rules the world, that God's way will triumph in the world. It isn't simply, oh yes, I believe. Um, Do you remember what James said in James chapter 2? You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It isn't simply, oh yeah, yeah, there's one God. I, I, I believe that. Well, great. Welcome to the club of demons. They believe that as well. We need to see the first commandment is not simply a matter of belief. You need to believe that there is one God. Okay. But rather it is a call to worship. 
to worship the one true God and not have other gods. We are not doing God a favor by believing in him. I mean, when we pray, do we think, boy, God must be really happy that I'm praying, that I'm acknowledging that he exists. No, we're not doing him any favors. When we accept that God exists, we're accepting reality. And when we live in that light, then we are doing what he has called us to do. The commandment is clear. God does not simply want our belief. God wants all of us, our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Hear, O people of God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And this is where the first commandment leads us. Let's pray together. Our Father, by your grace, we want to do the right thing, but our hearts are prone to wander. And even as we gather with your people, there might be something in the back of our minds saying, I'm a good Christian. I'm, I'm here on Sunday morning worshiping the true God. Perhaps even as we pray, we might be thinking, God is pleased. I'm a good Christian because I'm praying. And somehow we become God, or we imagine that we do, and you become our servant. We are your servants. We are your children. And we are to worship you. Your law, in fact, is quite wise. And people have discovered that even if they don't believe in you, if they follow these commandments, they will have better lives. But that's not enough. We are to recognize who you are, the one true God who has redeemed his people. And we are to turn our backs on all other gods. May we not be content to say, I believe in God, but to live, to put our lives on the line, to live in the reality of the truth that you are there. You have made us, and you've made us for yourselves, for yourself, not for our own selves, as we often do. Every day we are to live as though this is, in fact, your world. And one day you will triumph. Through good days and bad days. Days of joy, days of sorrow. Relatively easy days and really hard days. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I thank you for bringing us here together today to worship you. 
May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place, as we walk in the world, surrounded by neighbors, by co-workers, by friends, who may not, in fact, believe that you are the one true God, who may run after false gods. But in your strength, may we live lives of obedience and be lights in a world of darkness. Again, I thank you for bringing us together. Go with us as we leave this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.